turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. We're going to pick up again where we left off. We ended chapter 6 a few weeks ago where we had uh, our honored guest, Pastor Robert Cole, was here a couple of weeks, and uh, I'm sure you all benefited from his messages as well as I did. And so now we're going to pick back up in our our expository series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, And so we will be beginning chapter 7 today, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. And I want to read those verses first, and then I will... uh, give a few introductory comments, and then we will begin to go through these verses and see what God has for us. So let us read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Father, we ask your blessings upon the reading of your word, and we pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive the words that you have for us this morning. Speak through me, empty me of myself, and may your Holy Spirit take over your word and implant it upon our hearts for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. In chapter 7, we come to, in this book, we come to a transition point, so to speak, in the, in the layout of the book. In the first six chapters, Paul has been dealing with this church and some issues that had come, that had come to his attention uh, through some various reports, mainly reports that he had heard from Chloe's people. We see that uh, in chapter 1, verse 11, where he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. And so he, he, he begins into this process of confronting the issues that are causing these divisions and this conflict in this church. And so in chapters 1 through 4, Paul's dealing with this conflict that had caused this church to divide itself up amongst its leaders uh, uh, in different camps around their favorite leader. And then we see in chapter 5 and 6, Paul is dealing with some issues that, that weren't, they were internal, but they had, be, they had external consequences. The, the, the city around them, no doubt, was seeing these things. In chapter 5, Paul deals with this young man who was having an improper a sexual relationship with his stepmother, an incestual relationship. And so Paul confronts that, uh, confronts the church for, for allowing this to go on and not really dealing with this brother the way they should. And so he deals with that in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, Paul deals with this, uh, this, this, this tendency of these Christians to go to court against each other, to, to bring these frivolous lawsuits against each other. They weren't able to deal with these things within the confines of the church itself, and so they were airing their dirty laundry, so to speak, to the whole world. And so he deals with that, and then he deals with the issue of sexual immorality in general. Uh, there were was, there was several people in this church, in this, in this city, who were, um, who were indulging in sexual immorality. As we've said many times, the city of Corinth, 
uh, was a very depraved city uh, of that day. It, was, it would probably rival our Las Vegas of our day, but probably any city uh, would, uh, in America would no doubt look in, in certain times. And like the city of Corinth, they were very, uh, very much involved in sexual immorality. And some of the people in the church had begun to indulge in these things. And now we see in chapter 7, 1, we see a transition point where Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Let me just stop right there for a second. This is a phrase that Paul will use several more times as we continue and progress through the rest of this book. Uh, He'll see it in chapter 7, verse 25, where he says, Now concerning the betrothed. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, Paul will be dealing with the issues of food sacrifice to idols. He says, Now concerning this food sacrifice to idols. In chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts. And then he begins to deal with this issue of spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. And he gives instruction on that. And then finally in chapter 16, 12, he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos. And he gives instructions about how these people were dealing with Apollos. And so there are several issues now that the church uh, is, uh, that Paul is going to be dealing with the church over. But this is not in the same way that he was previously in the first six chapters where he was really uh, condemn or not condemning them, but coming down on them and, and getting on to them because they were ignorant of many things that they were doing wrong. Now he's dealing with specific issues that they were curious about themselves. They were confused about many issues. And so they put together a letter with several questions that they had and they sent it to Paul and said, would you pre- please help us with these questions? Would you please give us direction uh, on these matters? Uh, just a quick side note, isn't it good to know that the church of Jesus Christ is the place to have your question asked and answered? Isn't that a good thought? That this is the place you come to get the answers to your questions. No matter what the question is, God's people can get an answer to it. God's people have an answer to everything that we face right here in the Word of God. And the church, being the, the buttress and support of the Word of God, using the Word of God is where we come to get our question answered. No matter what the question, there are no foolish questions for God's people. We can come to it with an open heart and an eager heart and get our answers. And that's what Paul is dealing. Every question these, these people submitted to him, he eagerly took those questions and then filtered them through the Scriptures and gave them an answer. Even questions about sex, and that's what we're going to be dealing with today. We, we have been talking about the issue of sexual immorality in chapter 6, and so Paul, knowing that he had just addressed the wrong view of sex, is now going to deal with the right view of sex and how sex, what sex really means for God's people. Does it have a purpose? And so that's what Paul is going to be dealing with here in chapter 7. Not only that, he's going to be dealing with issues of marriage itself. He's going to go through issues of, uh, of singleness. We're going to look at that next week. And then issues of, of, of divorce and, and remarriage and things like that and, and about whether uh, uh, it's good for a person to marry or not. And so he's going to be looking at several things about marriage as we go through Uh, chapter 7. But I do want to say that chapter 7 is not an all-encompassing theology of marriage itself. We can't just read chapter 7 and say, okay, I know everything that God's Word says about marriage. We have to go many other places to get a full-orbed view of what God says about marriage. But specifically today in verses 1 through 5, we're going to be dealing with the the sexual intimate relationship uh, in marriage. Uh, And so we're going to be learning about that and going through chapter 7, but there's much more. God has much more to say about marriage. 
I mean, we, see, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and we see God giving us instruction at the very beginning of time. And we're going to look at that in just a second. And so the Bible does have a lot to say about marriage and it's beyond this chapter. But there is a lot in this chapter and a lot of principles to learn from this chapter. And so with that being said, let's look at verse 1 and begin to see what God has for us in these five verses. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, Some of your translations, many translations, say it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I believe the NIV says it is good for a man not to marry. Uh, Really what this, what this word means, sex, to touch or sexual relations, it literally means the sexual act. And so um, that's what Paul is beginning to address here. But I want, I want to point out something. In the ESV, around this phrase, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, there are quotation marks around it. And so there's a little bit of debate about whether this phrase is a phrase that the people are saying or, or a phrase that there are a mentality that they had adopted about marriage, or whether this is something that Paul himself is bringing to the forefront. I believe, uh, based on uh, reading through it and studying it, that, that the, the, the best interpretation of that is that this is, this is a view that this Corinthian church had adopted. They were saying, this is a summary statement of their view, that it, they were saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they were saying. And so Paul here is taking this issue and he's summarized it into this one phrase and now he's going to begin to deal with it. And so that's the reason we see quotation marks around it. And so first thing we have to ask ourselves is if, if even if it's Paul saying it or not, is Paul anti-marriage? What's Paul's view of marriage? What's Paul's view of sex? And so we, we, all, we immediately know that, God, he, that Paul cannot be agreeing with them if the Corinthians are saying that it is good to not have sexual relations with a woman because go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and you see at the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve in verses, uh, chapter 2 verse 18 it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. And so he, then he creates Eve, his wife. And so we know that uh, part of the reason why God had created Adam and Eve, because Adam is naming the animals and he's seeing that they all have uh, uh, companions and Adam has none. And so God is saying it's not good that man be alone. And so he creates Eve for him. And so we know that, that Paul is not endorsing this, just flat out endorsing this statement that, it's, that, that sexual relationships in a marriage is no good. He's not saying that at all. He cannot say that. He would be contradicting the Word of God. And so what Paul is dealing with here is this idea that some of the people in this church had begun to adopt. And we have to remember that in this church there were pre-Gnostic or dualistic ideas of, uh, of spirituality in this church. And what I mean by that is that as we know about Gnosticism, if, you, if the Gnostics believed that, that man, you could divide man up in two. He had his spiritual being and then he had his physical being. And the spiritual being is the one that goes on to heaven. And it's the most important part. And that part has been saved and redeemed. And so we, uh, we focus on that part, but the, the, the physical aspect of, my, uh, of man is useless. And so uh, we ignore that. Sometimes that leads to licentiousness. I believe that's what we see happening somewhat in chapter 6. Some of these people were involved in sexual immorality and they had no problem with it. Uh, and so they were, they were dividing themselves out and said, I know I'm saved, I know I'm going to heaven, 
But what I do in this life, in this physical body, is irrelevant, so I'm just going to indulge myself. Some of the people were in that camp. But also that pre-Gnostic, dualistic mindset will also take you to the other side, to another ditch which says, okay, the, the spiritual aspect of man is the good part. That's the one I want to focus on. And the physical part of man is no good. I'm going to ignore it altogether. And I'm going to ignore it from the standpoint of saying any, any pleasure that I receive in this body is wrong, and so I will stay away from it. And so uh, we see that I think what some of the Corinthians had begun to believe was that sex itself was evil and that the answer was celibacy for all. Instead of being indulging themselves in sexual immorality, which all the people around them were doing, they were saying, no, 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 let's, let's just do away with it all. And celibacy is the rule of the day. That's what everybody needs, even married people. And so Paul here is looking at that and he says in verse 2, but there's an adjacent In in grammar, that's an adversative which qualifies the slogan preceding it. But, Paul's saying, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So one thing we need to see here is Paul doesn't completely disagree with their statement. He doesn't completely disagree with the aspect of, being, uh, of, of, of abstaining from sex, but what he's saying is that you have to define who that applies to. You can't just make a blanket statement and say sexual activity is wrong across the board and we must stay away from it, period. He's saying, yes, it is right, but only in circum- certain circumstances, and we're going to see what that circumstance is next week. Uh, when we get into uh, when Paul was talking about himself and how he was been given the gift of singleness. And so Paul is not saying that he's that they're said are wrong, but what he's saying is that you guys are, are, too, are applying it too roughly. You're applying it to people that it should not be applied to. And so he says, but because of the temptation to sexual sin, to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so what he's saying here is that sexual immorality is a problem. It's real. It's all around us. And the Corinthian assessment of the problem is real. But the answer is not forced celibacy for all, but marriage. Proper uh, uh, sexual relationship in a marriage between a man and a woman. And so I want to see, we're going to see several things about the marriage union as we go through these five verses or or the next four verses. And the first thing we need to notice is that about the marriage union is that it is a blessed union. The marriage union between a man and a wife is a blessed union. Sexual immorality, though real, it does not exist between two people in a covenant of marriage. Any, any, any indulgence in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, whether it be fornication between two people who are not married or whether it be an adulterous relationship where one or both are married but they're in a relationship with people that are, they are not married to or even a homosexual relationship, that is out of bounds. That is sin in the eyes of God. We must call it sin because God calls it sin. But there is no sexual immorality in a sexual relationship between a man and a husband. God's Word clearly says that, and we're going to see that very clearly as we continue to go through this. So in that instance, it is a blessed union according to God. It's blessed in that aspect. And so another thing that we see here is that it's an exclusive union. He says each man, must, each man uh, should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's the answer God says to this issue. And going back to Genesis chapter 2 again, he says, 
after he had created Eve for Adam, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so there we see that it's an exclusive union between a man and a wife, a man and a woman for life. It's a lifelong union. When it says here, each man should have his own wife, that's a euphemism for the sexual act itself. And so it's also in the present imperative in the Greek. And so actually the way it should read is that each man should continuously have his own wife sexually and likewise the woman for the man. And it's a monogamous relationship. And it's a relationship that must be in the bonds of marriage. This is not a relationship between a... Uh, a, a guy and his girlfriend or a girlfriend and her boyfriend. This is a relationship between a husband and a wife. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is beginning to define the parameters of sexual activity. Outside of the bonds of marriage is wrong. It's sexual immorality. Within the bonds of marriage, it's right and holy. And then we see in verse 3, we also see that it's a responsible union. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That word give is, a, is another present imperative verb. It, it means to be doing it continuously. There is a payment of a debt that each one owes the other. Marriage without sex is not only unnatural, but is expressly forbidden according to the Word of God. And so the husband should give, continuously give to her, his wife her conjugal rights, her due, this debt that he pays to her and vice versa from, him, from her to him. Now, no doubt this verse has been misused to say something that it doesn't say over and over many times. Many times it's probably used as a weapon to demand sexual fulfillment from the other. This is probably one of the most well-known verses in the Bible beyond judge not lest you be sent, judge not lest you be judged. Many people have probably memorized this verse. Many unbelievers have probably memorized this verse to demand something from their spouse. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. He said the husband should give to her her conjugal rights. There is a due, there is a duty involved here. There is something that is paid to her. And it is his duty to give it to her and vice versa. There is, a do, there is a payment made to him, a duty involved to him, and the wife pays it to him. What is very clear in this entire section of, of, of Scripture here is that the stress is put on what we must do to serve the other rather than on what the other does to serve us. That's very clear here throughout this passage that the emphasis is on the other, the otherness of this text. This is key. If you don't get anything else from today in this sermon, please get that that this aspect is, 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 is outside of us. It's, uh, it's other-centered. It's other-centered. The focus is entirely on what we must do to serve our spouse in this area of marriage. So it is a responsible union. Also in verse 4, we see that Paul is laying out that it's a submissive union. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What's he saying here? Do you see the equality being stressed in all of these verses? There's, a, there's parallelism going throughout all these verses. There's equality. Uh, Paul lays out very clearly in Ephesians 5 the role distinctions of a husband and wife. The husband is the head of the wife, and the wife submits to the husband. 
But in this area here, in this area of intimacy between a husband and wife, there is equality here. There is a, a, a submissiveness that goes back and forth one to the other. That word authority uh, means to have power over. And so what it really says, the wife does not have power over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have power over his own body, but the wife does. When we get married, brethren, we lose something. We lose our bodies. In the marriage covenant, God has given over to the spouse our body for the satisfaction of the other. It's very clear here. And so we must see the otherness of this text as well and that we do not have authority or power over our own bodies, but our spouse does. And then the final thing we see in in verse 5, it's a reasonable union. He says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so we see here that this is a reasonable union. The first thing, how is it reasonable? It's reasonable about human desires. Notice that word deprive there in the first, first phrase. Do not deprive one another. It's reasonable about human desires. There are sexual desires in, in the human being. There's sexual desires in the man and wife. And when he says that word deprive there, in some, verses, some versions it says actually defraud. And that's a good uh, word to, to describe what he's talking about there because it means to steal or rob an individual of his or her possessions. It's the same word we see back in 1 Corinthians 6, 7 whenever he was uh, teaching them about how they should not go to lawsuits against each other. He says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's the same word that he's using here when he says, do not defraud one another. Do not rob one another of what is due. Paul here is issuing a command. This is, in, this is another imperative. This, this whole text is filled with imperatives here, commands to do something. Paul is issuing a command, do not deprive one another. And so what he's saying there to these Corinthians who had who had gone over to the other ditch, they had begun this celibate Christian ascetic life to where they were denying uh, an intimate relationship with their spouse. He's saying, stop doing that. That's not the answer. Not in marriage, it's not. The answer is that you are defraud. If you're doing that, you're defrauding the other. You must stop that. But then he goes on to say, in the rest of the verse, the next way that it's reasonable is it's reasonable about spiritual desires. Why should you not deprive one another? Or or when when is it right to deprive one another? He says, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And so one thing we need to see here as we go through this verse, and this might be an uncomfortable set of texts for y'all to listen to. It's very uncomfortable for me to preach. I can promise you. (laughs) But one key thing we need to see here, and we're going to see this when we leave, that this is a very important part of the Christian life in the marriage. This is very important. And we need to get that today. And I'm, we're going to have, I'm going to have more to say about that in a, morning, in a moment. But we need to realize that this is not the most important part of our life. This is not the most important part of a Christian marriage. Because he says here, When do you deprive the other, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time? Why? So that you can devote yourselves to prayer. The most important part of our life, brethren, is Christ. It's our Christian life when our walk with Christ. And so here's the parameters that Paul lays out that you can set aside or, or abstain for a while 
from sexual activity in marriage, he says, by mutual agreement. And that means mutual agreement. Not one of you deciding that, uh, that you're going to become pious and, and, and devote some time to prayer and the other one's not into that. It's a mutual thing. Both of you have sat down and you've talked it out. You've, you've described the problem and you think this is what we need to abstain for a while so that we can focus primarily on the issue that we're dealing with. So it's a mutual agreement and it's only for a limited time. This is not something that you drag out for months and months and years. You know, this is a very focused time. It's very limited. And it's focused in the sense that you're spending and you're, you're focusing your devotion on prayer. Some translations say prayer and fasting. And so the question begs, what kind of prayer is he talking about? Because Paul did say pray without ceasing. <laughs> and so if I pray without ceasing, and this is one of the reasons that we can abstain from sexual activity, then you see the problem, right? And so what is he talking about here? He's not talking about the everyday prayer that we engage in, uh, the, the, the time that we spend with God daily in, in prayer and communion with Him. That's not what he's talking about here. He's focused on if the situations that come into our lives, come into our families from time to time that just are, 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 are more than we can handle. It's those times where we really need to focus hard on prayer and fasting and devotion to God, and we need to set aside everything for the sake of focusing on this and praying for this. I, I envision this to be times of great trial and great uh, uh, pro, uh, uh, terrible circumstances that you're facing, uh, times of indecision. You have a great decision, a huge decision before you. You have to, to come to a conclusion on it, and it needs your folk, complete focus. And so that's what I think Paul is talking about here, uh, that you would abstain except for, a t- for some time in prayer. And so we, seeing that, we see that still... Our our number one priority is Christ and our relationship with Him. Sexual activity in the marriage is good. It's it's been given to us by God, but it is not the ultimate. Uh, Our relationship with Christ is. And so the next thing we see that Paul is talking about here about the marriage union is reasonable about spiritual dangers. He says that you could abstain except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. He's saying don't take too long in your abstention from intimacy. Satan is our adversary. Do we know that? Do we understand that, that Satan is an adversary? He is bound He has been defeated at the cross, but he is still active and he is still prowling around, as the scriptures say, looking for those that he may devour. And this is an area that he is is experiencing great success in the world, even in the church, in this area of sexual temptation. He knows exactly how to get us in that area. We live in a day where it's all around us, do we not? It's on the TV, it's on the computer, it's in, in, in written word in magazines. It's everywhere. It's, on the, it's, in, it's in, the, in the marketplace when we walk and we see this and that. It's all around us. And so Satan is having great, great success in this area. And so Paul is saying, do you not understand that there is a reality here that Satan is tempting you in this area? Sexual temptation is real and it is deadly. People are being devoured by it. And so you do not need to abstain too long because this reality is that Satan is tempting you. He will tempt you. And then the final thing we see him saying here in verse 5 is that 
that we need to be reasonable about is reasonable about spiritual struggles because he says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Marriage is a protective shield that should be employed effectively against Satan's subtleties to exploit human weaknesses by tempting either the husband or the wife into committing adultery. But we need to realize that we all struggle in this area of self-control. We all do. It's a reality. Men struggle in this area primarily, but so do women. And so God has given us this uh, this answer to this to this struggle, and that's the marriage relationship. And so He's laying out here that you you can't you are allowed to deprive one another. You're allowed to set this aside for a time for a limited time so that you can devote yourselves to prayer, but realize that Satan is a real tempter. He is a, he is, he is a lion going about looking for those who may devour him because we lack self-control. And so we need to realize that these things are real. And so, But I do want to, I do want to emphasize here that I don't want you to get the wrong idea that, that marriage is just for a guard against sexual temptation. That's not true at all. It is, that is one of its purposes. And that's what Paul, I think, is clearly teaching here. But if, if you are going to get married because you are struggling in the area of sexual temptation, you're going to have a difficult marriage if that's the reason you're going to look for a wife. Because you're going to violate every one of these scriptures that I've been going through today. Because you're going to use that as a way to, to receive instead of give. And so you're going to struggle. And so we need to, to realize, again, the, the, most, the most important point about what we're getting through this text this morning is the other-centeredness of what Paul is teaching us here. We exist for the, for the benefit of the other. We, I exist for the benefit of my wife in this area, and my wife is here to help me in this area. And so we need to realize that that's not what marriage is about. Marriage, like I said, this is not the all-encompassing view of marriage here, but but but. But we see that, that in, even in the early chapters of, Ch- of Genesis chapter 2, God gives Eve to Adam and they, become, they, they enter into this covenant of companionship. And we see that throughout the Bible. We also see further revelation in Ephesians 5 where God says the marriage relationship is what illustrates Christ and the church, Christ's love for His bride, the church. And we as husbands and wives, we show the world around us what that love looks like. And so we have to keep all of that in mind when we're talking about marriage. And so what Paul is, is dealing with here is he's trying to help these people who, who had the right idea. They realize sexual immorality is all around us. It's rampant. It's eating us alive. It's destroying families. What will we do? Let's abstain from it. Let's get away from it. Paul says, you're half right. You, you, know, you need to be careful. You need to run away from flee sexual immorality. But that's not the way. That's not going to work. That's not going to do it. And we see that in, in, uh, just being worked out plainly in front of us in the Roman Catholic Church who requires their priests to be celibate. And we see the effects of that in our own day. And so celibacy for the sake of celibacy does not work because it's a hard issue, right? It's the heart is what we're talking about. That's where the evil exists. And so Paul is saying that's not it. Uh, if, 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 these, if this issue is real for you, then the, the answer is marriage. And if you are in a marriage, the answer is not celibacy. The answer is giving one to another. And so I want to, I want to in conclusion, just sum all this up. By, I want to read uh, some of the uh, principles that are laid down. And that's where I get the title. 
uh, for the sermon, principles for a lifelong honeymoon, because, listen, we all remember our honeymoons, right? We all remember that that was an exciting time in our life because we were getting to know each other on many different levels. But as we grow and as, as the pressures of life begin to encroach upon us and as we, we have children and then, and then we age and all these things press in upon us, what, is, what relationship usually begins to suffer? Our intimate relationship with our spouse. And so we need to recapture that that we had from the very beginning. And I think God's Word tells us that we can ha- always have that if we follow God's Word. And so in this book, Strengthening Your Marriage by Wayne Mack, he lays out seven principles um, to, having a ver- uh, to having a vibrant relationship. And he says, number one, sexual relations within marriage are holy and good. They're holy and good. God courage- encourages sexual relations and warns against the temptations that may arise from deprivation or cessation. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so we need to realize that it is holy and good. It's not evil. It's not just for procreation. It is, it is a relationship that God has given us to us for pleasure as well. He goes on to say in number two, pleasure, pleasure in sexual relations is not forbidden, but rather assumed. And we see that in, in several places in the Bible. But how many of you have ever spent time reading the Song of Solomon? It's a book in the Bible. It's about halfway through. It's right after... Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. I just want to read uh, just a couple of excerpts in it just to show you that God does not have the view that many people have about an intimate relationship. And this is a book that's written. It's, it's a series of love poems between a husband and wife. The wife is saying something to the husband, and the husband replies back. In my Bible, it has headings over some of the areas that says she or he. And so it's kind of like a play. You're reading and you're, you're seeing the characters talk back and forth to each other. Verse one in, uh, chapter 1, verse two, and four, 2 through 4, this is the, the wife talking to the husband. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Uh, therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. That's the wife speaking to the husband. And then the husband uh, replies back in a, a little bit later in a different way. He says, chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. And it goes on and it gets even more graphic from there. This is God's Word. This is not a Harlequin romance novel. This is God. This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit showing us the beauty of a relationship between a husband and a wife. It's pleasurable. It's enjoyable. It's exciting. And so it's laid out here before us to show us that, that many of our grandmothers probably in fundamentalist circles have, tra- have trained us that sexual activity beyond just procreation is evil and dirty. And that is not God's view of it. Brethren, that is not. 
God cherishes this. He's given us this great gift in our marriages, and we need to cherish it as well if we utilize it in the proper fashion and if we see that we are here to serve each other because you'll see that if you go and read through this whole book. And I challenge you all to go and read through the whole book and just see this relationship unfolding before you. It's a great relationship. It's a great, beautiful thing to see. And so we see uh, that God is clearly telling us that... um, that it is pleasurable. And then um, the third thing we see is uh, sexual pleasure is to be regulated by the key principle that one's sexuality does not exist for himself or for his own pleasure, but for his partner's right, for his partner. I want to turn over to Galatians chapter 5 real quick. And you might think this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but I think it does. Chapter 5, verse 13 and 14 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what does that have to do with what I'm talking about? Who is your closest neighbor? Your spouse. That's the most important, the closest neighbor you have in your life. For those of us who are married... And so we need to realize in this area and what Paul is laying out in these five verses is that we are here we are to exist, to, to pleasure and to give that pleasure to our wives and to our husbands. And so it is not a dirty thing. It is a great thing. It's pleasure to be regulated by the key principle that one's sexuality doesn't exist for me. It exists for the other, my wife. The fourth thing, sexual relations are to be regular and continuous. No exact number of times per week is advised, but the principle that both parties are to provide such adequate satisfaction that both burning and the temptation to find satisfaction elsewhere are avoided. you understand that principle? It needs to be regular and continuous. The fifth thing, the principle of mutual satisfaction means that each party is to provide the sexual enjoyment which is due his or her spouse whenever needed. But, but of course, other biblical principles and the principle that one never seeks to satisfy himself but his partner in marriage always regulates the frequency in such a way that no one ever makes unreasonable demands upon another. Did you hear that? There are other principles involved here, right? Again, we do not use these verses as weapons and as demands that we, that we impose upon others. There are things that, go, that, 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 that direct us. So sometimes our wives really do have headaches. Sometimes they're real. Sometimes husbands have headaches. Sometimes husbands are really tired. But they shouldn't last for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? We should realize that there are times whenever Situations do not, do not uh, line up so that we can participate in this activity, but we do need to realize that they are real. The sixth thing, in accordance with the principle of rights, there is to be no sexual bargaining. And that, I think this is probably one of the ways that we have, we have struggled in this area, right? We, 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 we hold that back as if it's a weapon in our hands and we say, Okay, if everything is lining up today exactly the way it is, if you've treated me exactly the way I, you should treat me, then I, will, then I will participate with you in this way. And that is completely foreign to what Paul is saying here. 
He's saying the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise to the husband. There's something due there. It's not based on the fact of whether or not you have mowed the grass today or whether or not you complimented the supper today or whether or not you did this or did that, right? It's based on the fact that we are other-centered. We're other-focused. And then finally, sexual relationships are equal and reciprocal. Paul does not give the man rights superior to the rights of the woman. Mutual, in, mutual initiation in the sexual act uh, is, on, is not only permissible but enjoined. Marital rights entail mutual responsibility. And so we need to see that what Paul is beginning to lay out here as he addresses this issue of marriage, and as we begin to go deeper into this, he's going to see that marriage exists first and foremost to glorify God, to show the world the relationship between Christ and the church. But it has a real impact upon us. It has a real benefit to us. We enjoy our relationship. We enjoy all the aspects of our relationship. And so Paul is saying here, for those of you who are already married in Corinth, and remember this was a specific situation he was dealing with in Corinth. He's saying, for those of you who are already married, do not abstain from sexual activity. That's not the answer. The answer is to pleasure one another, to be involved in each other's lives in this way. But then he's going to go on to say, for those of you who are not married, he says that it may be, it would be good if you could be as I am. And I'm not going to get into that because that's where we're going to go next week. He's going to talk about the gift of singleness. Some people have been given that gift. Some people have had singleness thrust upon them. But the main thing I want to end with today is that no matter where we find ourselves, whether or not we're married and we have a vibrant sexual life going on in our marriage or whether we're struggling in that, or whether we're single because we choose to be single or whether we've had singleness thrust upon us, Christ is our all in all. The gospel is for those of us who have blown it. The gospel is there for those of us who don't get it, for those who have messed up. And so we need to realize that no matter where we are in life, no matter what our struggles are, that the gospel is there to pick us up. God's grace is sufficient for us. And so if you find yourself in a single state and you're struggling with these desires and you're struggling with these issues, then realize that God's grace is there to carry you. He's there to uphold you. And we need to lean on that. And we need to help each other in these, situ- in these areas because Satan is tempting us, brethren. It's, it's all around us. The, the temptation to sexual immorality is very real in our day. And it's all around us. And, we're, and some people are being defeated by it. But if we help each other through this struggle, if we work hard on, the rela- on our relationship and our marriage, not just the sexual relationship, the entire relationship, our spiritual relationship. Because if there's a problem in the sexual relationship, it usually goes much deeper than that. There are other problems beyond that that's causing. That's just a manifestation of it. There are spiritual problems going on, right? The loving relationship, the the sharing relationship is breaking down on many fronts. And that's just one of the ones we feel the worst. But we need to realize that we have to work hard in our marriages to be other-centered because we're by nature self-centered. We are self-centered. We are focused on the things that we want and we desire, and we put aside those desires of, of our wife and our husbands. And so we have to, we have to uh, deprive ourselves. We have to combat that every single day. And the gospel gives us that victory.
And so there is great hope, there is great joy. And my prayer is that for all of us who are married, and all of us who seek to be married one day, that we will have this type of marriage that the Bible lays out, whether it be the sexual part of it, the spiritual part of it, all of it, that we will have of it, have it exactly the way God has laid out for us, and that we will be a beautiful picture of Christ loving the church. That's our hope and that's our prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the instructions of your word. And even though, Lord, this is a very difficult subject for us to deal with, there is great emotion attached to it, Father. We thank you for the light that you have shined at our feet. And we pray, God, that you would help us to walk in that light, to grow and strengthen our marriages in this area. And, Father, we give you the glory and we pray that you would bless us uh, to be that light to the world, to be that reflection of Christ and the church. For your glory we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.